it's just so special. I think surfing and having a connection with the ocean like that, it gives you an awareness of the elements. You know, you're paying attention to the tide and the wind and the swell. And it's really cool that we can have that connection, like a bond with the ocean, which is always going to be more powerful than anything else. Welcome to the Just Women Sports Podcast, where we talk to the biggest athletes in the world about the untold stories behind their success. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and my guest today is Stephanie Gilmore. Stephanie Gilmore is already one of the greatest surfers of all time, and she might just be the greatest when she hangs it up. Stephanie turned pro at 19, and her first year on the world tour won the world title. She then followed that up with three more consecutive world titles, making it four in a row. In 2018, she won her seventh, tying for the most all-time by a woman surfer. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Very excited. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Yep. Yeah. Just uh, hanging out here down in Australia. Relaxing? And, uh, yep. Chilling out. So there's Very nice. not too many waves today, so it's a good time to have chat. Oh, perfect. So we, <laughs> we're not keeping you from anything good out there. That's what I was most worried about, for sure. <laughs> not we're all good. Sweet. Well, I am super pumped to have you on today. You are our second Aussie to come on the podcast, but you're our first surfer. And I personally am super excited because I love surfing. I'm not very good, sadly. I wish I was better. But I think it's just one of the most peaceful, calming, enjoyable experiences out there. And I find this juxtaposition of like the spiritual side of surfing and then the uber ultra competitive world tour side of it. Fascinating because I feel like that's not the case in a lot of other sports. So very interested to talk to you about that today. But before we get in to all those things, let's find out what little Steph was like back <laughs> growing up. Mini Steph. Yeah. Um, so I'm the youngest of three three girls and we grew up in Kingscliff which is a little beach town in uh, northern New South Wales which is on the east coast of Australia and pretty much every Australian that I know you know they spend their holidays at the beach they're surfing they're fishing they're doing surf life saving yeah everyone is really connected to the coastline in that sense so yeah it's kind of like you don't really have a choice and I didn't really have a choice because my father is a mad surfer. He still is. Like he's 67 this year and he still surfs more than most people that I know. Like he's two or three times That's a day. Amazing. He's out there doing his thing. And and my mom, she was a school teacher, so she's really chill but very studious. And she was always the one that would be pretty bummed at me if I was skipping school to go surfing. I was about to <laughs> my say. My dad that. was like, probably stoked. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If dad being like, go catch some waves, mom's like, skipping school. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, so was dad who introduced you to surfing? Like, was he the one who took you out for the first time? Yep. I was around 10 years old, nine or 10. And dad would take my sisters and I down to the beach and dad would work like early shift and then sort of change over. So we kind of you know, dad was like, well, I'm going surfing. So you guys are in my care. You have to come with me. And he would just draw a circle in the sand and say, okay, you guys stay there and I'm going to go catch some waves. And, you know, I, I think I just always grew up seeing how amazing it is to be so passionate about something and how much joy he gets from riding waves. And we all sort of really liked it, but dad put us into a competition. I was around 11 years old and my elder sister, Bonnie, she 
did not like it. Like she lost early and she was just like, no, I hate this competition thing. And I went in it and I kind of lost early too, but I was like, wow, this is so cool. Look at all these female surfers. Like there's so many girls and they all rip and it's like such a cool vibe down the beach. And I really loved it. And yeah, we did athletics. I loved running and, and man, I wanted to go to the Olympics for like javelin or discus and all kinds of things. But Surfing no was really something that, that stole my heart from a young age. And I was in a competition when I was 12 years old and I came second and I got a trophy. And I just thought, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. That was it. And also because I came second, I was like, wow, I never want to come second again. I want to win that's everything hilarious. forever. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, for sure. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm surprised you started at 10. I feel like that's so, that seems late. late. Mm-hmm. considering how quickly you ascended into, you know, winning world titles, which we'll get to. But so mm-hmm. when you stood up on your first wave, like as a 10-year-old, or the first time your dad took you surfing, were you like, oh, that was fun? Or were you like, no, I like, I, I love this? I don't have too many like clear memories of when I first started like riding waves on boogie boards and stuff. But yeah, I remember having our dad like push us into waves and sort of show us around. And then I remember like catching waves on a boogie board and trying to stand up and spin around and do all these tricks. And I have one really vivid memory of doing it in here in Coolangatta, which is a really popular beach. And there's always like hundreds of swimmers and lots of people around. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope I'm impressing all of these people that are like swimming around me. You know, I remember like standing up and spinning around on my boogie board and thinking like, look at me go, I'm amazing. (laughs) And that was something that always stuck with me in terms of, you know, when people say, oh, you seem pretty relaxed for like a fierce competitor. And then I kind of always think back to that moment and go, it's more of a performance thing that I really love, you know, going up there on that stage and having a moment to kind of like shine and impress people, which sounds so arrogant, but... No, I mean, it makes sense. I feel like that's like a piece to being not, I don't want to say psycho competitor, but like being the competitor that gets you to winning world Mm -hmm. titles and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So I feel like it makes sense. And the fact that you don't have a vivid memory of like first standing up on a surfboard, but you have a vivid memory of the first time you came in second place at a competition. Like I feel like that speaks volumes about the type of competitor that you were. Like in surfing, it's one of those things like I... I definitely had that sort of competitive instinct from the beginning, but surfing, like you said, is such, you know, it was my first love, 100%. The first thing that I just fell head over heels for, it was all I could think about. You know, it's the first thing you think of in the morning when I'm like waking up as a young girl and I'm like, oh God, I wonder what the surf's like. And I, you know, do I have to go to school today because I just want to go surfing or get out of school and I'm like running home to just, literally jump straight into my swimsuit or my wetsuit and run down the beach. And it's amazing when like you really think about maybe your first love with another human, but what actually was your first love in life before you knew um, about relationships with other people. And, and yeah, it's, um, it's just so special. I think surfing and having a connection with the ocean like that, it's, it's uh, unique for humans, but it, it, gives you an awareness of the elements you know you're paying attention to the tide and the wind and the swell and you know you constantly like no matter where you are you sort of have this feeling of like oh the wind just changed the surf's probably like offshore and pumping and it's really cool that 
that we can um, have that connection, like a bond with the ocean, which is always going to be more powerful than anything else probably on For the planet. Sure. You know, one big wave could just wipe us all out. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's humbling. It's humbling yeah. for sure. For sure. At what point were you like waking up in the morning thinking about the surf? Like was that a couple years in or pretty quickly after you tried it? I'd say very quickly, you know, 11 years old. That was definitely, I mean, I, I definitely had like my little blue ribbons up and medals of like my 200 meter running yeah. race and all those sorts of things. But I think I was really what was in my mind was what, you know, the next kind of surf session was going to be like. And, and that's the coolest thing about surfing too. You know, it's like you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Even though you're doing the same activity, your playing field is always changing. Every yeah. single day, every single wave is completely different from the last. So it just keeps you coming back for more. And we're really lucky in that sense that we get to, yeah, it's an addiction, healthy addiction. Yeah. It really is. I completely agree. So when you started to get into it, at what point were you like, oh, I could go pro in this or this could be what I do? Because what did the surfing scene look like at that point in time? Yep. So, um, yeah, the early 2000s, there was a women's professional tour and I didn't think I paid too much attention to it. You know, I, of course, I had the posters of my favorite surfers up on my wall and that was most of them were men, to be honest. And then I think this was also because they just the magazines were so male driven that they didn't even give us the option. You know, we didn't yeah. even there was barely a double page spread or a poster of a girl that ever came out of a men's magazine. So the options weren't there until, you know, I'd say in my 15 year old self, um, there was a lot more female surf magazines popping up. Roxy was going crazy, you know, like as a female surf brand, it was everyone wants to be dripping in Roxy and, and they're the cool, like the most iconic female surfing brand. And I'm proud to be a Roxy surfer. And, you know, as a young girl, seeing the posters and the imagery and my favorite surfers were Lisa Anderson, Sophia Milanovic. They were all world champions, but they were also surfers that had such a gracefulness and a style when they were riding waves that looked like dancing to me. And, um, yeah, I was just obsessed with having good style, but, you know, winning as, you know, being a champion. And, and all of those women were so humble too, you know. They wanted to hang out with us as groms when, when they show up on the coast here to surf. And, and I just really loved that. But I remember... There was actually another key vivid moment in my career. Oh, this is pre-career. So I remember being like 14, 15 years old. And I remember like winning a lot of junior events and thinking, oh, this is fun. This is, look at all these cool prizes I get when I win, you know, like <laughs> stickers and hats. And, you know, when you're a kid, that's all you want. You just want yeah, the swag. stickers on your board. Yeah, you want the swag. And I just remember thinking about how, and once again, I don't want to sound arrogant, but it was like, I felt such an ease with winning. Like I, I loved the idea of putting myself, like feeling nervous and paddling out into a competition. And you know when you're a kid and you just say to your mate, I'll race you to the end of the street. Yeah. You know, see if you can swim out there, see if you can catch that wave. Like just you're always testing each other as kids. And I think that I sort of felt that I could carry that into like a bigger stage. And so I remember yeah, finishing school and there was a major surfing tournament. So it's like a world tour event and they were right here on the Gold Coast in Australia where I live and I finished school, went down the beach to watch my favourite surfers compete 
And I remember sitting on the beach and watching them, you know, all of these women were surfing so good. But I just had this, like, I don't know, it was such a strong um, intuition that I could do that. You know, I remember sitting there just saying, like, man, give me an opportunity. I can do that. I can win. Just put me in that event right now. I will smash these girls. Like, I just, I remember feeling so strongly about it. But I finally got the chance in um, 2005, which when I turned 17, I was still in high school, but I got that wild card. You know, I got the chance to go in the main event against my heroes and I ended up winning the whole event because I'd already done it, you know, in two, a couple of years prior. I'd been in your mind. through it in my mind. I was sitting on the beach and I'd already experienced it. So to do it in real time was yeah, it was. It felt natural and, and easy, and it, it was so enjoyable. But I'd say around yeah, fourteen, fifteen was when I really thought, okay, this is what I want to do for life. That's so cool and crazy that you had it at such a young age. Um, mm. And just to go back to, so you said in two thousand five, and you're given a wild card entry. Which can you just explain what that is <laughs> for the listeners? Yep. So on the world tour, which is it's like the World Surf League, which is the main tour the grand slams of our surfing sport. There are 17 women in an event and they're the top 17 women in the world. And there's one wild card entrant that they give to a young local surfer that's come through and they've won like a trials event to get to the main event. But usually they give it to a local surfer who has shown some, uh, you know, promising results in their junior career. And, you know, it's kind of like to help build the stories uh, throughout the event to be like, oh, I wonder if the local kid can yeah. <laughs> match up against the world's best. And so I actually got into the trials event and I won through, I won that event. So I earned my ticket into the main event and then you go in as the lowest seed and you basically from the very beginning, you're surfing against the top seed, which was, you know, the world champion at the time. Like all of the world's best female surfers were in this event. And yeah, I started from the bottom and and I made and my way. I, to be honest, I remember like sitting at school with my friends at recess time, like when you're eating your lunchbox. And I remember saying to them like, oh, how cool is this? Like, imagine if I won the whole thing. And we we're all kind of laughing like, oh, yeah, right, as if. And then I remember like making each heat that I made was like, oh, I made another thousand bucks. That's so good. And then the next moment was like, oh, if you keep winning, then you get more days off school. At the end of the day, that's what I wanted. I was like, sweet, I get another day off school. This is that's the best thing ever. That's what was motivating ever. you? Oh, my yeah. gosh. That's incredible. And then, yeah, making it all the way to the final where I competed against Megan Abubo in the final. She's a Hawaiian girl, and she was always really good in big waves. And I remember walking down the beach in the final just thinking, this is sick. She doesn't even need to paddle out. Like, I've already won this. That's how strong I was that's as a young insane. girl. And It's crazy because now I'm at events, and I'm like, oh, wait think back to when you were that age because I feel like I was way more um, headstrong in my yeah, competitive we, vibes back then. <laughs> we actually have talked about this a lot on the podcast because so many people have such incredible success at a young age. <laughs> and isn't it fascinating how now being older and even having the experience and all the wins under your belt, you had a completely different level of confidence back then, almost <laughs> like not naive, but just... Do you think your confidence came from not having expectations? Totally. It's it's a complete balance of having that like carefree, nothing to lose, the naivety, and then also like 
yeah, just that desire to kind of win, but also being, you know, intimidated by the older girls in just enough. It's kind of, you get just enough of each ingredient that you're in the perfect little zone that you've got the confidence, but you're not going to push it too hard. Yeah, for sure. Was this the point in your career that solidified, okay, I'm going to do this professionally? Because what did it look like after winning this event for you? Yeah. Uh, so I was 17. I was still at school and I just won a world tour event. And totally in my mind, I was like, yeah, I knew I could do it. And now I've just done it. So I've, if anything, I've just justified to myself that I can do it and I deserve to be on the world tour with the best. And yeah, you know, you have people along the way and you're maybe school teachers or whatever, and they're a bit bitter because they're like, ah, you should do a real, you know, you need to go to university and study something amazing and get a real living. And, uh, and I remember thinking, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to, money was never a driving force for me, but it was like, I'm going to make more money by next year than you've uh, this year. You know, it was yeah. sort of like as a young kid, you sort of want to be a bit like against the system. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I just, I mean, from that point I decided, yep, this is me. I want to be a world champion and I know I can do it. Uh, that was like just a little step. I love that it wasn't even, I want to be a professional surfer. It was, I want to be a world champion. Like (laughs) from the get go, it wasn't even, oh, I want to turn pro and get, you know, be able to travel the world and get paid to be a surfer and all these things. Mm -hmm. It was like, no, I want to be a world champion, Mm -hmm. which. Yeah, I definitely had some clarity on, on that. You know, I had a one track mind in that sense. Yeah. So can you walk people through how you qualify to be on the world tour? Because it's not like, oh, you know, I'm going to, announce on Twitter, I'm turning pro and that they just put you on the tour. Yeah. So to qualify for the world tour, you have to spend a year on a qualifying series, which is like 10 or 12 events that happen all around the world. Um, and you know, surfing season is, we've never really had a season. It's like we started February and we end in December. I know surfing is a grind in terms of the competitive schedule. You know, people always say, oh, you're chasing the summer because you're a surfer. And it's like, well, actually we're chasing winters because that's where the swells are. You know, you're getting storms that are producing bigger and better waves. But yeah, so we compete for a year on the World Qualifying Series. And if you make the top five on that, then you officially qualify to compete for an entire year. You've guaranteed your spot on the World Tour for the following year. And that's to be in the top 17 women in the world who then you go on to compete in the like Grand Slam events, which uh, there's 10 of them. And same thing, you know, we start in um, February or March and they're actually rescheduling at the moment. They might try and make it a season, but yeah, it's always been like you start in uh, February and then you surf all the way through until December. And it's in locations where we start in Australia. We do a few events there. We go to Bali, Brazil, California, France, Portugal, and South Africa. All over. All amazing. Yeah. Hawaii, lots of exotic locations. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible job. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, to your, to your credit, it is a grind. Um, Mm. You know, you're going all over the world, but I do think that people think of surfers or professional surfers, like you said, oh, like you're living the life, which you are, you love surfing, but there's this element of you're on the road for nine, 10 months out of the year, all over mm-hmm. the globe, essentially. Yeah, it is glamorous. Like it is an amazing and just, you know, 
incredible opportunities when you're traveling the world constantly and seeing these places and surfing these waves and just you're having a great time you're a professional gypsy uh, but it's a grind totally like you're packing your bags at the start of the year and you may never come back until like Christmas time and it's pretty tough you know it's tough on the body it's hard to get in routines you know that a few of My friends and I, we're all pro surfers and we sort of talk about how, you know, it would be difficult to be in a sport that you're playing like in kind of big, ugly cities all the time. But at the same time, it would be so nice to have that repetition, you know, to have that uh, field or to have that skate ramp or whatever it is where you can continually practice over and over again the same thing to kind of really perfect what you're doing. Because in surfing, the waves are always changing and it's like you never get the same ramp or the same wave twice to be able to practice over and over again so it can be quite frustrating but all in all I would say you know traveling I think is one of the greatest gifts anyone can give themselves um, just to gain perspective on their life and what they have you know where they've come from how they can help around the world and other people that are less fortunate and stuff like that so Yeah, I think traveling gives you the greatest perspective. I absolutely agree with that. So you turn pro in 2006. You go on the QS, you tear it up. You're on the world tour as you're 19. It's 2007. And spoiler alert, you win. You win the world tour as a rookie, which to me is just (laughs) crazy because you're competing against women who have been probably surfing for years and professionals and know the routine and you you come in and you win did you go into that gear being like yeah I'm gonna be the world champion at the end I just remember thinking like okay cool I'm gonna qualify this will be pretty pretty sweet and I just remember thinking like it's so funny to me that when people qualify for the world tour their goals are I want to be in the top 10 or I I really want to make it to the top five or the top three, and I was just like, why Why do you want to be in the top anything? Just, I just want to be the one, number one. Like, that's it. That's all I've got in my mind. And I needed that confidence because, like you said, the tour was full of incredible female athletes that were strong and inspirational. And, you know, it was a different era of surfing too. They had to really battle for their place in the world, in the surf world, in such a male-dominated yeah. sport and industry. And, you know, they had to go through so much shit to really make sure they deserve that place on tour. And and I sort of came in like, yeah, sweet, I can win and push through. And I managed to do it. But, yeah, it wasn't without really, you know, wanting to make sure that I earned the respect of the women who paved the way for me. But, yeah, it was cool. I really, you know, I thought, I want to win and let's see how long I can just win for. So, (laughs) Yeah. And then you freaking did, which is just so crazy. And I mean, it came down to the Mm -hmm. final event. And I think you touched on this earlier when you were explaining the structure of the world tour. But for the listeners, it's based on points throughout the year. So you have your 10 events. However you place in each event, the higher you place, the more points you're allotted at the end of the year, whoever has the most points wins. So you go into this final event and you need a certain number of points. You don't need to win the whole thing. You just need to win a couple rounds, but you went out and won the whole thing and, and you end up being a world champion. So what were you feeling going into that last event of that year? 
So heading into the very last event, I was, it was actually the, the event before the very last, we were in Hawaii. And so the last two events were in Hawaii and I was at Sunset Beach. The waves are like big and scary and I was, you know, freaking out because I could win the world title at the second last event of the year. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. I could do it here. Like I was just, I'd sort of, I don't know, I'd, I wasn't in the right headspace for it then. I was looking at like, I was hanging out in Hawaii and I'd see a black cat walk past and be like, oh, that's it. I'm going to lose. I saw a black cat. It's all over. You know, I became all superstitious and all these things that I never even cared about before became like in the forefront of my focus. And so I really freaked out. But yeah, I got to like the quarters and I ended up losing and I was really devastated because I was like, oh my God, I didn't win the world title. Like I had a chance and I didn't do it. And I was so bummed at myself. Like I think everyone after the event was out partying and I just locked myself in my room and was all cranky, like can't believe I didn't win. <laughs> and yeah, I had to go to Maui and I was just lucky because I got a, another chance, you know, that wasn't the final event. So I still had another shot. I remember going to Honolulu Bay and Honolulu Bay on the island of Maui is one of the dreamiest waves in the world. Like you're sitting out there and you know, you're looking at Molokai and it's just so beautiful. The water's crystal clear and it's insane. And I remember just thinking, oh, this is what I love to do. And the main girl, Savannah Lima, from Brazil, she was um, coming second and we were battling all year for the title and, and she ended up losing in like round two. Yeah, so I took it all the way to the final because I thought, all right, she's out, the pressure's off, all I have to do here is have fun and I managed to do it. So. <laughs> How do you feel like your life changed after that first title? Because I feel like for surfers, some of them are chasing their first world title for years and years and years and deep into their career and they haven't won one and then they finally do and it's like this confirmation of how good they are but you win it your first year so you've like made it how'd your life change <laughs> I think I just you know it didn't change too much it was like a lot more work in interviews and you know you definitely your time you become a little more time poor I think the biggest thing I realized is that you're not just a surfer after that you're not just a kid who loves to go surfing and put on a jersey and go and do it um I learned that, you know, with winning comes work. You're now at every event, you have to be at the press conference. You have to do the interviews leading up to the event. You have to do the interviews after the event. Even if you didn't win, they want to know why you didn't win. Yeah. That's when I realized that you're more than just a surfer at that point. It becomes a little more work. But I think I was lucky that I was aware of that from a young age and also aware that, yeah, with winning comes responsibility. So... This is what I find equally as impressive, if not more than winning world title. You go on after your rookie year of 2007, you go on and you win the next three world titles. So 2008, 2009, 2010. And making it four in a row, which is just crazy. Because a lot of people can speculate and say, oh, winning your rookie year is great, but it was beginner's luck or things like that. But you went out and just quadrupled down on it or tripled down on your first win and showed it was just pure dominance. And from a fan and a spectator's perspective, to me, like watching from afar, it felt like you were untouchable. So how did you feel in those years following your first world title? Yeah, they say that defending a title is much harder than earning your first one or 
yeah, not defending, which is definitely true. Like later on in my career, you know, having won and then lost the year after and then, you know, sort of thinking back on it and realizing that, yeah, I actually don't know how I went one four in a row straight off the bat. Right. Yeah, I really put it down to um, just enjoying competition, like enjoying the whole, every part of it, like enjoying the lead up to events, being in the water, making it happen, losing, assessing how I felt when I lost, uh, how I can make changes, what kind of waves do I need to get better in, like working on those things all the time. In my mind, I just thought, okay, well, if you're going to start at the top, you're going to stay at the top because the world number one, being world champion is the reason you're on this tour and you were able to do it before, so why can't you do it again? There really was nothing in my mind that was holding me back, even though, yeah, there was probably moments of doubt and stuff, but having that target on my back was, I'd say, an an extra driving force to want to do better, to want to stay on the attack, for instance. I worked with a really amazing woman early in my career, um, Jan Carton, and she really helped me to understand like the sports psychology of it. And, you know, every time I'd go to the gym to work out, we'd end up just sitting there and having like these three hour long conversations about just learning how your headspace and where you are within your mind and your emotions and everything can be, you know, so much more powerful than just doing a hundred squats. And it, so and I sort of, I'd say from my first, second year in, I was paying so much attention to that stuff and it helped me win all the way to the fourth title. You know, there was a point when I was at the fourth title and people always say to me like, so which world title was better? The first one or the second, third, fourth? Like which one was it? And I actually couldn't answer it because I didn't have anything to, <laughs> to weigh it against. To measure it against. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I don't know because I haven't actually lost yet. That's amazing. And I, I remember having a, a thought of like, oh, I wonder if, like, when does it ever stop? Surely maybe it'll plateau at some point. But then I was thinking, shit, maybe if I just, imagine if you had a whole career where you just won the whole time and then you just tapped out and you're like, all right, I'm done. I don't think it, would, would, I don't cool. think it would be as enjoyable. Do you? Exactly. Like, I think that, Definitely not. Yeah, I, I truly In, believe that the losses, as much as they hurt more than the winning feels good, the losses make the winning feel that much better totally it's so much more rewarding yeah once you've been through something to climb back up the top and that you know in 2011 so at the end of 2010 i just won my fourth world title and i had this incident here in australia where um i was attacked by this homeless guy and i had broken my wrist and you know had stitches in my head and it was a really traumatic experience especially because it was at my home yeah And it really, you know, it rattled me. It rattled like everything where I was questioning my confidence in the ocean. I was questioning just everything. And I was thinking, okay, is this it? Like this, I mean, I threw it out to the universe. I was like, when does the winning stop? And then there you go. I got my answer. Be careful what you wish for, people. That's the moral of the story. Jeez. At that point. So that was the very first year that I lost the world title. Just to put this in perspective, you Mm -hmm. win in 2010, end of 2010. When did the assault happen exactly? What so month? the assault happened at like Christmas time at the end okay. of 2010. So Got the it. season ended like middle of December. and the So you just won a mm-hmm. world championship or a world title again. Yep, just won a world title home. again. And I, yeah, was as good as life gets. Like it can't get any better. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was Christmas time that the incident happened and fully rattled my cage and the... The tour started in the end of February 
the very next year. So yeah. I had like just over, yeah, like a month, month and a half to really get ready again. And yeah. I was out for about six weeks with the wrist and yeah, I was like. I still remember reading about this and I, I remember reading it being like, what, what in the actual F, this is crazy. Um, and so thankful that you were okay, mm-hmm. ultimately. So you go into 2011 and you have this like traumatic life experience. When did you get back into competing in 2011? So I came back the very first event. I was, you know, very determined to make sure that this incident didn't, you know, hinder my success that I wanted in my life. I'd had a few weeks off where I couldn't surf and, you know, my arm was in a cast and I was like, oh, this is horrible. The worst part was that I was like, this wasn't from me surfing or like skateboarding or just doing yeah. something myself. It was an outside force that kind of created this hurdle for me. And it was the first time in my life like that I'd really had such a traumatic experience and such, you know, a mountain to climb ahead of me. Yeah. Cause like you said, you really hadn't had any injuries, but then you have like potential injuries keeping you out of surfing, but then you have this, like you said, the emotional trauma, mm-hmm. um, which I just, I, again, it was much, still don't know. much more tough to recover from. I think like physical yeah. injuries, you, you know, if you're eating right and you're doing your, your physio and your rehab, you, you can really fast track that process. But emotionally it's like no one, I mean, yeah, you can get help with counseling and whatnot, but it's really up to you to dig deep within yourself and ask yourself those questions and, and see how you feel and also just take the time to heal. For sure. Do you feel like there's a point during 2011 where you felt like you were back to your, or you were getting back to your normal self? Yeah, I think the whole year was a bit of a wish wash. You know, there was moments where I really, I wanted to be overseas the whole time. because I was like, oh, I don't want to be at home because that's where it happened. And that's like scary. And, and, uh, you know, the, the guy got arrested, he went to jail and, but I, I think it wasn't until in 2012 that I won an event in France and it was like my first event win back and I was like, okay, I can take a big deep breath and it's, it's all going to be okay. And it's amazing what human beings go through and the resilience that you build through these moments that really create your character and they add to who you are and it's, yeah, it was always a really positive take on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean so much respect for being able to one have that happen to you how you handled it get through it and then you come back like you said in 2012 and you're an underdog for the first time in your career um and you end up winning that year correct wait 2012 yeah was it i don't yeah. even know anymore see that's how bad right i, I have to look that, that oh up god. is it 2012 oh my god no it's 2012 oh, 2012 okay. no 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 no, no it's 2012 come on, come on. my notes are right <laughs> um and it you won the first event of that season mm-hmm. so what do you remember about that day and winning yeah snapper rocks i remember it was a new competitor in me it was it was a beast that I hadn't even met yet myself. It was always like I'd built this competitive creature within me. And then it, this was the unveiling at this this first event, and can I show everyone what I've got? And uh, Snapper Rocks is my local break. It's the first event of the year, 
that was the first time that I really understood like killer instinct because in the past I feel like I was able to sort of win just from being happy and joyful and wow this is so fun sick things just happen great all the time and this was a real moment to be like all right you need you got to want this to win and you Mm -hmm. want you know you have to sort of um look at your opponents like they're a piece of meat and you haven't eaten for a year and it's like you know and this was cool because for me it was like acting because my my nature is is really relaxed and this was the first time that i was like whoa this is cool i like to kind of act out this scene where i need to you know really show up and just do anything that i can in my power to win and uh, it sort of rejuvenated my whole approach to the tour yeah just kind of got me excited to bounce back and and try and win another title mm-hmm. win this event did that ability that me- that mentality evolve on your own do you think you said that you worked with somebody were you still working with that coach yep so i was still working with jan the coach at the time and we i also think i just started paying more attention to other athletes you know i was looking at mm. fighters and other surfers like andy irons and kelly slater at the time and you know they just hated each other and i was like i've never understood that sort of approach but then I understood it because I was open to it. You know, I think I've always been lucky that because I've had such great success early in my career, I was able to kind of try different things and I wasn't, I wasn't scared to um, take a different route and see if it worked or not. But, um, you know, it's awesome because when you really look at, you know, look at the fighters, for instance, Conor McGregor, he's got like this giant tiger or lion or whatever it is like tattooed on his chest. And there's a lot of that primal um, instinct that people tap into when they're trying to perform or compete or whatever it is. And, and I just paid more attention to it. And I thought that that was, yeah, something that I could really learn how to do. And yeah. That's, I, I love that. (laughs) Uh, I'm definitely going to think about that. Um, So you win in 2012, you've already kind of talked about this, but that win feels number five feels so much different than the other four. Yeah, number five is, I would say, one of the most rewarding titles in my career. The most rewarding, I would say, yeah. Just because of the journey back to yeah. winning. Yeah, the journey. I finally felt like I had a story to tell. The first four didn't feel like a story, you know. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I just, just keep finished winning. school and won, and then I just kept winning, and then that was it. <laughs> and uh, that sounds like the most boring book ever. So, yeah, I, I finally felt like I had a story to tell and some resilience to go with it, which not saying, you know, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody yeah. in their career. But, yeah, that was my take on it. For sure. Your story is not boring. Not yeah. a boring book at all. Um, <laughs> so you go, you win in 2012, not in 2013, but then you go on to win in 2014 and 2018, which puts you at seven world titles, which is tied with Lane Beachley, who already talked about um, in this episode, for most all-time by woman. How did it feel to get to seven and to tie a legend in surfing that you had looked up to as a kid? Lane was always, you know, a really prominent female figure in the surfing world and, of course, in my world because here in Australia, you know, our population is really small. So when we have an athlete who's doing well, they're really celebrated. And that's one thing that I'm really proud to say as an Australian, like 
we really get behind our athletes and we support them in the sports. And so Lane, I always admired her because she was willing to work for the sport as well. You know, she wanted to be a champion, but she also wanted to see the sport grow. She wanted to see that from the grassroots levels, there was support for young women coming through and what are the programs that are in place that she can help grow the sport. And, you know, she ran an event on the Women's World Tour that had like double the prize money of all the other events because she really wanted to prove to everyone that, hey, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be making just as much money as the guys. And, you know, to me, that was so inspirational. And she was a businesswoman at the same time. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. That's that's another thing that I really need to pay attention to. It's like sporting careers don't last that long. So what are you putting in place to ensure a really successful career post-surfing? So yeah, when I finally, I mean, when I won my first ones, I actually feel like when I won my very first world title, it was probably one of the questions that I had was, cool, so like, are you going to go for lane seven? And I remember thinking, really? what the hell? It was crazy. <laughs> like I just won one. And yeah. it was probably, I would say my whole life, my whole career, that has been the most popular question. So are you going to go for lane's record? And um, and then obviously you get to, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, number seven comes a lot faster than you think and then all of a sudden they're like so what about kelly's record i know why don't you just go for 12 yeah (laughs) kelly slater has 11 is that i feel like i feel like i know the answer because little steph was like yeah i want to be world champion i don't want to be be talking about how much i hate losing for the last yeah Uh, no but kelly slater you know most winning surfer in history Mm -hmm. at 11 world titles so you're definitely chasing that, aren't you? Yeah. I, I mean, I would love to win eight world titles for sure. Like I was born in 1988 and I have 88 on my jersey and that is the main goal right now is to to try and hold that record because it's nice to sit equal with Lane, but yeah, I'd love to win one more. <laughs> <laughs> um, to win 12, that's pretty wild. Like that's a long, a long journey ahead and, and who knows? I mean... I still love it and and if I'm still fit and healthy and strong and Kelly's 48 or 49 this year no and he's still really? yeah and he's still wow. surfing um with the absolute best in the world but yeah yeah I really admire both of those athletes they've paved incredible champion paths for us new surfers coming through and but the Olympic, actually, I was going to ask you that because now surfing is in the Olympics for the very first time, which is I pretty cool. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, I knew it was coming, but I wanted to ask you first. So I was like, I wanted to know like what would be, what would mean what's better at a World Cup or an Olympic gold? Oh, get this question a lot. And <laughs> they're just different. Like World Cup is, the whole world is stopped and is watching soccer or football. And football is the global game. It's the universal sport. So the World Cup is just, it's an incredible experience. And then the Olympics is a totally different experience in the sense of you're not just, everyone's not just watching you. They're watching Team USA and you are a member of Team USA. And like, I might be, you know, I have my teammates on the soccer team, but then I have my Team USA track teammates and, you know, gymnasts, and we're all part of Team USA. And and competing for your country is just, I mean, it's the coolest experience. And as a kid, my first realization or, I guess, memory of seeing female athletes competing was the 1996 Olympics. And it was the gymnastics team. So 
I saw that and I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the Olympics one day, not knowing it would be in football or soccer. I just wanted to compete for my country and be on TV and be wearing Team USA gear. So very different. But how are you feeling about the Olympics? I know, I mean, you basically qualified, although I think you can't technically celebrate maybe until next spring. Like when is it official that you're going to Tokyo? Yeah, myself and Sally Fitzgibbons and uh, Owen Wright and Julian Wilson were provisionally qualified to represent oh, Australia for serving at the That is a stud roster right there. Yeah, we got a pretty good team. And yeah, I think, I mean, it's pretty wild to think that it would have happened a couple of months ago and, and it didn't. I know. And, and we get another chance to hopefully it all runs and it's all good. But yeah, I, similar thing. I remember watching the Olympics as a 12-year-old girl when they were in Sydney Australia, the year 2000. Mm. Yeah, I remember watching Kathy Freeman, who was, you know, she should be the face of Australia in my mind. She's the first Indigenous Australian to win a gold medal in the track and field, and she, or maybe in the Olympics for Australia at all. But wow. she ran in this um, all-over bodysuit, and, like, N- Nike had made her this suit that was just, like, so slick, and she looked like a superhero, and... I just remember watching her win with the weight of the world on her shoulders. It felt like it wasn't just Australia that expected her to win, but it was the entire world was like, wow, how amazing is this story? Yeah. And she did it. And I remember thinking, wow, that is incredible. Like that is a real life superhero right there to be able to show up and perform with all that pressure and win and do it with, you know, she was so humble and cool. And um, yeah, I really idolize her and still do. And she made me want to go to the Olympics. Same thing. I wanted to go and win gold medals. I didn't know what for. I was like, yeah. all right. Then when I started to get into like track and field later in life where I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm talking like I'm 12 years old and I'm throwing a javelin thinking I'm going to go to the Olympics for discus or javelin <laughs> until I realized when I got to like the state level that the girls were really strong. And I was like a skinny little surfer kid that could barely throw a stick compared to these girls. Yeah. But yeah, I, I really loved the idea of, of representing my country on the world stage like that and had really gave up on the idea of when I got I was about surfing. to say, because mm. this is, I mean, this is the first time surfing is going to be included in the Olympics. So what was your reaction when you found out that this was a possibility, a chance for you to go to the Olympics in your sport? It became a new, a new shift in my focus. You know, it was really? like, wow, I, I love uh, winning titles and I think that'll still be probably the pinnacle of our sport will be winning a, a world world title. Actually, to be honest, before we got accepted into the Olympics, there was a lot of talk about like, okay, it's a one-off event, one event every four years. Most locations where the Olympics are, the waves are terrible. Mm-hmm. And the Olympic gold medalist will probably override the world champion. Like that doesn't actually sit well with me because I was thinking, you know, as a surfer, you should be competing in all different types of waves, all different locations. You have to be consistent across all those different um, conditions, and then you deserve to be world champion. At the end of the day, I just think it's an amazing marketing exercise for for surfing and to really introduce people to this cool thing that we do, which is like, yeah, you know, a big storm is brewed out to sea and then wind blows these swells into the shore and then, we like paddle in at the very end and stand up and ride it till it crashes and disappears. It's a, it's a unique thing, but yeah, I've definitely changed my mind in that. I was like, you know what? The Olympics is the original 
greatest, biggest platform for sporting events and, and why not, you know, go out there and try and win world titles and Olympic medals. That's yeah. unreal. I love that perspective because I feel like, I mean, in Lizzie's episode, we talked about this a little bit in that because it's skateboarding is going to be, I think it's the first time they're going to be <laughs> in the Olympics. Yep. And that Olympics are too mainstream for, you know, skateboarding, that sort of thing. And, and surfing, I feel like there's, there can be a lot of critics within the surfing world or community that would maybe say the same thing. But I find it interesting that you are kind of like, no, this is a fascinating marketing exercise. And I want the masses to be able to, to watch surfing and to see it on this global stage and, and to hopefully convert a lot of fans and bring a lot <laughs> of attention to the sport. So you think that so you're in the camp of like, no, this is really good for the sport. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I think a lot of the critics who thought that surfing in the Olympics just doesn't sit well, I just sort of think, well, they don't have to watch it. You know, no one's forcing yeah. them to watch it. So if you don't <laughs> want to awesome. watch it, just turn the TV off or like go do something else. But yeah, I think surfing and skateboarding have always been known as those, you know, subcultures, the rebels and and they need to do things differently and, I think skateboarding still sort of holds that because, um, yeah, well, yeah, I guess they have X Games and like the Dew Tour and a few different events, but they don't really have like a world champion kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. But in surfing, I do think that, already have that. So. Yeah. And I think with uh, World Surf League, like they, I feel like just in the years that I've followed surfing or started to follow surfing, it's become exponentially better because in the past, the women's tour and the men's tour were separate. And now... So a couple of things in this with the equal pay within surfing in 2018, the World Surf League announced that all prize money had to be equal for men and women. And, um, you know, you guys compete or travel around the world and go to all the same places, compete at all the same breaks. And you were one of the athletes who was publicly calling for this for years. So can you talk a little bit about that battle to mm-hmm. to get World Surf League to pay men mm-hmm. and women the same? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I take a lot of credit for this kind of big change that happened within our sport, but it's really a lot of the women before me who were battling for this, you know, just to make these changes. And yeah, so we, I mean, the beginning of my career, I would, you'd stand on the podium and, and make $10,000, $12,000 and the men would make like $40,000. And, you know, so we were earning less than half of the men. And, you know, there was always the excuses along the way, like, oh, well, the women don't surf as good or we don't charge as hard. Um, There's not as many people that tune in. And, you know, there's always the excuses here and there. And like, well, you know, would you guys beat a a man in a competition? Probably not. So why should you deserve the same amount of money? And, And it's like, yeah, it's pretty frustrating. It gets tiring after a while. To be honest, I spent the first, like, well, I was never driven by money. So, number one, I really didn't pay attention to it. It only became... But it's more so, it, yeah, it's more so the respect piece. Exactly, the respect, yeah. The prize money changes. I think my sister, Whitney, she manages me and she really was, you know, so passionate about it. I was more just focused on surfing, like, whatever, yeah. I'll win, who cares? I can, like, get women excited about surfing through my actions of just going surfing. Uh, but she was like, no, 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 like, this is this is so important. This is bigger than surfing. And the beauty of sport is that our prize money is, 
you know, when you, you stand up on the stage at the end of the event and both so the men and the women hold up their checks together and it's public knowledge what you make. So right there is an incredible opportunity to set the standard for uh, industries and, and workplaces all around the world because I know in the workplace it's behind closed doors. No one knows what, you know, salary you're on or whatever. So sport is another tool to bring the world together in that sense and to say like, hey, we should be equal. I actually just read a really good, well, it was actually uh, Megan Rapino who was talking about how, you know, she got asked those same questions like, well, would you beat the junior men's team? Like, why should you earn as much money as them? Would you actually beat them? Probably not. And she said, well, to be honest, I am as skillful. I'm actually probably more skillful than all of those guys put together. But naturally, our bodies just don't grow as strong and as big. Um, and that's just science. So we can't help that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we train just as hard. We pay just as much to travel to the, these locations. You know, it's not like we don't get a, a 50% discount on our bikinis in the surf shop because we're a woman, you know, like you, you don't get a 50% discount at the hotel because you're a woman. It's a ridiculous argument, to be honest. Yeah. It's insane. But I think that's the beauty of sport. And when the – so surfing, the governing body of surfing was called the ASP. And in 2014, it was acquired by a private company. Dirk Ziff and Natasha Ziff and they yeah they turned it into the World Surf League and okay. now they're really trying to turn it into a business mm-hmm. and they I think from the very beginning they were just so enthusiastic about how magical surfing is how it's changing people's lives whether it's competing or just purely from free surfing so yeah it, it really um I think in their business plan it was um, in there to make these changes and it just so happened that in 2018 it was like all right this is it we're going to make this change the women and the men deserve to be paid equal prize money across all disciplines so they're actually the tennis um, they have equal prize money but only in the grand yeah. slams and so mm-hmm. in their like lower tiered events they don't actually have equal prize money and they've sort of claimed that they're they have equality and all sort of stuff for a while which is awesome it's an amazing start but um, the WSL said, okay, we really, if we're going to do this, it's not just because it's a trend. It's not because we're just, you know, everyone else is talking about it and the, the US women's soccer team is, is in the press because of it. It's like, let's, let's really do this right. And so from juniors, big wave tour, long board tour, up to the world tour is, is all equal prize money, which as a surfer, that makes me so proud because it's like, wow, right? you guys are, you believe in us and, you know, that. That's number one. That's a great thing. Number two, they, they want to see us perform better because at the end of the day, we're in the entertainment industry. So they've sort of stopped and said, all right, what do we need to do to get people to tune in to watch? And there's nothing better than watching a surfing contest when the waves are good. So for the women, I'd say the biggest change was not the prize money, but the priority to get good surf. So at the morning yeah. of any surf event, we all show up like first thing, it's like first light and you go down to the contest site and you assess the conditions. And in the past, it was like, oh, the waves are firing, the men are on. And it's like, okay, the wind comes on shore. All right, let's put the women out there now. And it never really gave us enough uh, opportunity to to perform well because we were always in the bad surf. And so the biggest changes have been having more priority. So now we show up to events. And it's so funny because when the waves are good and the girls are ripping, and everyone's like, oh, my God, the girls are just surfing so good. And it's like, 
And it's like, we surf like no. that. We just have never had the chance, you know. It's like, you know, sending the women out onto the the football pitch when it has like weeds and cracks, and there's like, you know, exactly, it's a shitty field. So, um, it's just it's a perfect example of a return on your investment. Like if you invest in something Mm -hmm. and you give them the best opportunity to succeed, exactly, the women rip, they're going to, and they show it because you actually allowed them to do that. So I think that they were major changes. And as surfing, like to be the rebel sport, to actually lead the way in this sense is great. And, um, you know, I, I really hope that it's encouraging a lot of other sports around the world to do the same thing because yeah, it's, Build it and they will come. You know, that's always, that's the other that's argument. I, They're like, oh, there's not as many women on tour. And it's like, yeah, but we haven't had the same opportunities from the beginning to build the sport, to have the same numbers. But if we start now, the future will, will have those numbers. You know, it's, that's, uh, that's just called natural progression if there's support there. Exactly. But it's cool. It's so inspiring. Like every single time I go in the surf, there are, the ratio of women in the lineup to men now is, you know, it's almost 50 50 in a lot of locations and we really bring a vibe that is a lot more balanced and and it's you know we're not out there to kind of take anything away from the guys or compete with them it's just like we're doing this for the same reasons let's respect each other and get on with it (laughs) totally i love it um all right we've taken up a lot of your time today and i feel like you gotta check the waves uh but we have a couple repeat questions to end so second repeat question they say work hard, get lucky. How much of your success is predicated on luck? Hmm. Well, in surfing, you could say a lot of your success is That's a good due point. to luck because you can't control the ocean. You can't control what waves are going to come and show up and, you know, will it come in time? And there's, there's uh, so much anticipation and yeah, it's a tough one. But in saying that, I think you can really make your own luck in a way that is, you know, believable enough that you can make it happen and, and will the waves to come. Yeah, I know. I feel like sometimes I've watched some heats and I'm like, oh my God. But that takes hard work. So right? uh, yeah. Yeah, it needs <laughs> the hard work to create the mindset that you can make your own luck. But in serving, yes. yeah, you kind of do need a lot of luck in serving. Yeah, that's that's a very good point what percentages would you put it at for surfing or for you specifically? And do you have like a, do you remember a specific time that you got lucky? Yeah. Or you feel like you got lucky? Oh yeah. So many times in my career where, you know, there's like a minute left and you need an eight point ride and, and you're sitting there going, looking at the horizon and there's just no waves and you're thinking, Oh man, like, come on. But yeah, I've had a few moments in my career where it's coming down to the last minute and I need a score. And, you know, for some strange reason, a wave will just pop up and it'll be a great wave and I'll be able to get the score that I need. Just that having that, you know, last opportunity. I think also, yeah, yeah, just staying positive right until the very end because it takes, you know, five seconds, three seconds to paddle into a wave. So a minute's kind of a long time. But, yeah, I'd say, um, I don't know, yeah, maybe luck, maybe 50-50. 50-50, nice. Oh, I like that's it. That's how I, I look like at it. it anyway. <laughs> okay, so we have one more repeat question, but I am curious. Like you said, the ocean gives you what it gives you. Waves have a certain tendency, certain breaks, look, feel a certain way. Before you paddle out or during the heat, before you catch a wave, are you thinking like, oh, I'm going to do two turns and then like 
errant or whatever, or are you just riding the wave and trying to get the best possible ride in the moment? Or are you planning ahead? Yeah, surfing is, it's very intuitive. You know, you're reacting in the milliseconds of things that are happening, like in the instant, it's, it's moment by moment it's hard to choreograph anything in surfing unless you're in a wave pool. So now we have a lot of surfing events in wave pools and that's becoming very yep. popular. But uh, even then, you know, trying to choreograph how you want to make a wave look is, is difficult because the speed and the sections and everything just will be different every time. Even at a perfect reef break, there'll be something just a little different. And maybe you're bored. Yep. Maybe you got a little more speed on your first pump than you expected and then you're a little ahead of time. And, and one of the best pieces of advice that I was ever given as a young girl was to learn how to read the wave because I'd like get to my feet and just race, race, race. And like, I don't know, I was always 10 steps ahead of myself so I'd fall off. And when someone said that to me, it really clicked. Like, oh, yeah, if you're reading the wave, then you're learning where to place your maneuvers in the best sections so that you're like, you are thinking ahead in the sense that you're like, okay, I'm going to do this maneuver here because it will give me enough speed to get to the next section to perform a carve or, or an aerial or whatever it is in the next section. Yeah. So yeah, you're always thinking, but it is, you have to be ready to, to change. Like you have to be flexible. That's for sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure. All right. Last repeat question. You've accomplished so much already, like we've talked about today, but where do you want to go next and how do you keep pushing? Yeah. The next stop for me is, you know, I, I, not world title number eight. If I can make it happen, that'd be really cool. And an Olympic medal, Olympic gold. Ooh. That would be rad. Yeah. No. <laughs> to win, to win an Olympic gold medal. That's, you know, something that I never thought I'd even get the chance to as a surfer. And that's kind of it really just, you know, I, I really love, uh, showing people female surfing and how beautiful it is and how inspiring female athletes are. There's just so many incredible female athletes around the world, like yourself and, and women that I've never even heard of. And then I listen to their story and I'm like, Oh my God, that's so cool. That makes me want to be better. That makes me want to go out there and like tell my story and encourage young women all around the world to, you know, just get up and, and break down those barriers and, and do some badass stuff. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, that's kind of the, the whole mission for me. It's just to do my thing and, and, you know, leave people with uh, a really good feeling when I hang out with them and, and take women surfing to new heights. Well, I love it. That's perfect ending point. You're a legend already. I have no doubt you're going to get eight and probably many more after that and continue to be like the ray of sunshine that you oh, are so you. and also a, what's a the complete... secret though to win a gold olympic gold medal you have to tell me like let Ooh, me in secret <laughs> well it's to be totally locked That's in it. being like i'm gonna freaking win this thing and no one's taking it from me so awesome. yeah and you've got that clearly so I, I don't need to give you any advice you're gonna be fine <laughs> i'll run with the shot i like it thanks Steph. thank you Thanks so much for listening. For more great sports content, go to JustWomenSports.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Our show was co-produced by Just Women Sports and Boom Integrated. Big thanks to our executive producers, Haley Rosen, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. John Murray and Sydney Shaw do our research. Production by Jen Grossman, Jeannie Montalvo, Victoria Gruenberg, Clint Rhodes, and Juan Garcia Ticula. 
Special thanks to Jesse Louie, Haley Kottmeyer, Savon Nadler, Dory Newman, Isis Haywood, and Kathleen Lumabi. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and you've been listening to the Just Women Sports Podcast. Catch you next time.